Hello, lacrosse friends, and welcome once again to Laxbeat, the podcast formerly known as Box Labeat. I am Stephen Stamp, your host, and very pleased that you can join me this week for what is a terrific conversation. First, though, make sure you check out this week's episode of the Lacrosse Link Show. It's available on the Lacrosse Link YouTube channel, also lacrosselink.com. Lacrosse Link, your link to all things lacrosse. On the show this week, I have terrific talks with a pair of recently crowned champions. Max Adler of Chaos LC, who won the Premier Lacrosse League title and Lucas Beaver of the Seneca Marksman, who won the IBLA Nationals. And if you haven't checked out last week's show yet, you want to go and watch my conversations with Graham Hossick, who recently signed a five-year contract extension with the Halifax Thunderbirds. Also, Arena Lacrosse League President Paul St. John, we talk about the expansion of the ALL into British Columbia. As for this episode of Laxbeat, Well, professional lacrosse recently learned of the retirement of a leading figure in a real class act. That's right, the New York Riptide shared the news that Andrew Suter is hanging up his stick. Suits was an excellent player, one of the toughest to set foot on a lacrosse floor. He is lauded just as much, though, for his leadership and being one of the best teammates in the game. I can tell you from personal experience that all of that stems simply from being a terrific person. When I heard that he'd retired, I knew I needed to have Suits on the show to share his story. And I know that you'll enjoy the conversation with Andrew Suter this week on Laxbeat, part of the Lacrosse Link family. Thanks for being with us. Joining me on Laxbeat is recently retired Andrew Suter. Welcome to the show, Suits. Thanks, Stamper. Always good to talk to you, buddy. Yeah, it's been a while with with no games really happening. Uh, we just don't run into each other. And then, you know, we see the news that uh, after 10 seasons in the NLL, you've made the decision to move on. And I'm curious, uh, quick synopsis, what uh, what made you think now was the right time for you? Uh, the three-headed monster, man. Career, family, and body. Um, yeah. I got an opportunity to pursue a bigger role in my company, um, which was number one. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. That was uh, <laughs> kind of the final push. Right. Um, Number one was discussing with Jennifer and uh, being around with JJ a lot more is going to be something that uh, I want to take, uh, you know, a bigger, not that a bigger role is the word, but I just don't want to miss the upcoming sports events and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm close to where I need to be to be ready for season and uh, every plyometric and every sprint workout, the, the old knees still, you'd think after this time off, it would go away and it's just hasn't. So just all in all, I mean, I could play and I, I know I could play. Would it be at the level I, I wanted to be at? I don't think so. But all in all, to me, it was just the perfect time to walk away and walk away without being on crutches or having an injury kind of di- dictate that to me. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the memories and moments that stand out for you in your career. And I've got some. I'm gonna, I want to start with one because it's a perfect segue. You talked about your knee and you talked about the, you know, the toll that injuries take. And I remember watching you play after you'd first come back from the, the really serious injury and it, it looked painful watching. It looked like you were, it was really taking a while for it to get to come back. And it looked like it was, I thought taking you a bit to, to get back to the player you'd been, cause you're always such a dynamic player. And then I remember watching, I was calling games down at the lax night and on Indaga and you picked up a, a loose ball in the defensive end. You took off, you made a cut, you got, it took a hit or something and you, you went to the turf, rolled, planted the foot, popped up, kept going, drove to the net. And on that play was when I thought, Suits is back. He's, you, you looked 
back to being yourself. And I'm wondering if that's around when you started to feel it or, or what the process was like coming back from those and, and getting back into the game after injuries. I mean, I think the biggest thing was, is right when I started feeling comfortable with my right knee, my left knee went. Right. And then I didn't even have a chance to feel comfortable with my left knee, my right knee went again. Right. So yeah. I think exactly what you were saying was after that time. And then I found that I was just going brace to one side, brace to the other, and they never wanted two braces. And then a third time, the surgeon said, I want no braces. And when I heard that, my eyes lit up and he's like, they're strong enough. That's why you do the surgery. And I think that internally in my head was like, okay, this guy's saying my knees are good because I always found when I had my brace on, I thought about it. I can remember yeah. distinctly playing for Joe Sullivan in Minnesota. And I went into the dressing room with tears in my eyes saying, I can't play. And he's like, what, what do you mean you can't play? I'm like, I can't play. I can't play tomorrow. I forgot my brace. And he's like, well, hold on a sec. We'll get your brace here. And I won't say who it was, but let's just say a Toronto rock player that I was playing against was nice enough to pick up my brace for me. And we were playing the rock yeah. and uh, brought it for me. So I think always thinking that I needed that brace or I wasn't myself yeah. was a big thing. So when that surgeon finally said, no brace, train like a normal athlete again, I started to feel a lot more comfortable and had a lot more belief in myself. So I think a big part of it was just the self-belief and self-awareness that, hey, these things are fine. Yeah. And and so much of that is I've, I've talked to so many guys after their injuries and they talk about that, the brace and the moment when you first go out without it, how nerve wracking it is, but then how reassuring it is when you are able to do the things that you need to do. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing too, is just, it's, it's just so different. Like it, it's like, you know, if some guys aren't used to wearing a sleeve or, you know, you have to change the way you kind of prepare for a game. And do you wear it for warm up? Do you warm up, then go put it on and stop? And like, it's not that it's an excuse by any means. It's just, it, it takes its toll on different people, different ways. And for me, I would warm up without it, then miss the last part of stretching because I had to put my brace on because I wasn't comfortable to do any of the sprinting. Right. Uh, and uh, so now you, uh, you're, you're moving on from the game. I, like I said, I want to talk about some memories, some moments from your career. Again, 10 NLL seasons and, you know, Man Cup championships and, you know, playing in Victoria and Peterborough, uh, a whole bunch of NLL teams, uh, especially in the last, the second half of your career, um, you know, playing up in Ganawagi. I know you really uh, had a lot of fun with. What are, let's pick a few. So start with one, just something that stands out as a, a moment that just is really memorable for you. Uh, well, I mean, I'll, well, I'll kind of do it in a timeline. So sure. the, the first one was actually being called up um, as a second-year midget to play a junior A game, the home opener against the Peterborough Lakers um, in my second year um, is one that was kind of, you know, eye-opener experience for me. And then that summer I ended up playing second-year midget, all junior B games and all junior A games. Wow. So I played pretty much – the whole month of June and July, I didn't have a day off of lacrosse and I would attend all practices and stuff like that. Um, there were some junior A games I didn't get in the lineup and stuff and some junior B games, but I was traveling with the teams. Right. So that was a, a big one. How many um, games is that? That must be like I, I, 50 or 60 games, right? Uh, yeah, I had no idea. Like it was at the point where I would play uh, the midget qualifiers uh, and the Friday I'd play a junior A game and then go play the midget qualifiers and sometimes play a B game the Monday. Wow. It was just, it was just insane. And uh, I thought that was a year I took the, my biggest strides in lacrosse. 
Mm-hmm. And then from there would be making the junior A's is a huge memory. Obviously the, the two mental cups are something I'll never forget, but uh, it's all good um, from there. And then I remember emailing Victoria and telling them that uh, I wanted to come out West and I was given an explanation of, you know, why I wanted to come and stuff. And uh, they, they're like, yeah, we're actually going to call you. So that was a pretty cool moment. And then uh, getting drafted and uh, winning the two main cups of Peterborough are all moments I'll never forget. So let's look at some, I mean, I, the, the junior in Orangeville, obviously, I mean, such a storied program and man, you played on some amazing teams. Like it's funny when we, when you talk to folks, you know, from the, the States and that who don't really know the Canadian game as much and they, you know, but they're big NLL fans. And then they see the rosters of some of the, you know, the MSL teams, but even going back to, to junior, like your, your Orangeville junior teams were stacked and just, just a bunch of beauties on those teams. Yeah, it was uh, it was like having uh, your best friends with you three nights a week, right? So all that stuff was uh, extremely fun and uh, a lot of fun to do and a lot of fun to be a part of. And, you know, the thing that I found cool was majority of those teams were from Orangeville. So it's kids that, like the Nobles that I would be at the Provincials and watch them win. And, you know, I'm two years older, winning Midget and they're winning Peewee. And, uh, you know, to see like Brandon Ivy and the Harnets and everything like that, it was a, just such a tight-knit group. And Mm-hmm. Then we go out and make the biggest accusation of all time and get Adam Jones, who, in my opinion, that I saw is the best junior A player I've been, I've seen and been a part of, um, you know, for a guy to kind of carry a team in 09 on his back being covered by Kyle Rubish and Chris Corbeil the whole time, I think yeah. speaks volumes on that, but uh, it was great to be a part of. And then uh, we had the big fella. Uh, Rosie was incredible, especially going for, back to a four by four net. Yeah was uh was with a big wood stick it was pretty tough to score on them and uh that just showed you how good kind of the cody jamesons and that are too and the sean evans who would put a ton by them but uh the memories in orangeville are stuff i'll never forget and uh happy i got to be a part of it you mentioned the uh you know the mento cups what what year of junior in when you won the first one was that your third year yeah my third year so we went to we won ontario we lost in game seven uh, with one second left on the clock to six nations in 2007. And then we won in 2008, 2009 and 2010. And then obviously lost the heartbreaker to a pretty good Coquitlam team in 2010. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good club. And, and that Coquitlam team had Mark Matthews uh, augmenting their offense, right? Well, the way I like to explain it is they had the Saskatchewan rush. That's right. I mean, they had Mark Matthews, Robert church, um, they had Dinsdale. They had a young West Berg. They had Ben McIntosh was um, playing, wasn't ben, it? Ben, Benny Mack was there. Yeah. Uh, it was it was incredible. And uh, you know they had big, strong defense led by Maddie Beers. They had Newfell back there. They had Billick. They had bo- both Cornwalls. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty special team. Yeah, yeah. Those that, that was some great Mentos uh, that year. And I, I mean they they went back the next year and played in, uh, in Whitby when Matthews was back in Whitby. And that was, that was pretty fun seeing it going, going the other way as well. And uh, now you were out of, out of junior by them, but that Orangeville team had the nobles and um, Craig England. And uh, that was a, a pretty amazing team as well. I mean, just, yeah. Hard. And uh, just heartbreak for them too. I mean, yeah. they lost to uh, Mark and Whitby in seven, but, I mean, I don't, I, I, you're more of a stats guy than I am. I would like to know another team that were, you know, the Nobles won four out of five years Ontario championships. Yeah. 
So I'd like to see a stat against that with, I think, three out of five Minto Cups. So to me, that's uh, quite the resume. And, uh, you know, those kids deserve it. They worked extremely hard. Yeah, that's an and all-time Dil- group. And Dylan, Dylan, Dylan Ward wasn't bad either. Yeah, yeah, he was pretty good. And then, I mean, we haven't even touched on a ton of guys. I mean, Robbie Hellier was playing by then with that team too, right? Um, oh, Robbie Hellier, Ian right? McKay. Jordan yeah, Critch. Uh, Jordan Critch um, was phenomenal. I yeah. mean, just to go back from the start of my junior career to the end, I went Mike Poole and Evan Kirk, Nick, Nick Rose, Dylan Ward. So, I mean, I guess I could pick no better goalies to have a chance to play in front of. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um, you mentioned the Man Cups. I'm going to share one of my uh, my favorite Man Cup memories from when you were playing in Peterborough. You won a uh, home Man Cup. And, uh, you know, there's lots going on on the floor. I'm out interviewing people and there's celebration. The family's all down. There's a lot going on. And then I turn around and there you are with, I can't even remember if you had your shirt on or not, but I know you'd gone in and shaved off half of your beard. And I mean, vertically, you took off. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty substantial playoff beard at that point, and one side of it was gone, and uh, that was, was hilarious. I mean, it just looked so funny. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember that pretty good. It was me and uh, Raj. We went in, and he's like, "What do you think about doing this?" I said, "Let's do it." And we had uh, we had some pretty good laughs with it. And uh, obviously, I felt like a part of the family in Peterborough, uh, especially the Sorensen family. Yeah. Obviously, with Brock coming here his last year as junior and mm-hmm. them kind of taking me under the wing when I got there. And uh, that's and Millie and Keister took care of me pretty good up there. Yeah. And I mean, family is such an important part of it. Like you said, I mean, the Sorensons are, are one of the great families in the game. I mean, always supporting and just so big in the playing such a big role in their son's lives. And of course, for uh, for you, your family is huge. I know. I mean, the number of times we'd see the whole Suter clan there, your folks, your sister, um, is a big supporter. And uh, honestly, they're, they're such a part of the whole thing that I feel like, you know, I really developed a relationship with them. I still keep in touch with your sister and keep track of how she's going. She's got her uh, her business going. And I mean, it's just it's just so cool to see that involvement and support. Yeah, it's uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to do any of it without them. I mean, the five years I was in Peterborough, my dad had the same season tickets. I don't know if he missed a home game. Um, so, you know, and that's coming from Orangeville at three o'clock to get there for five 30 to eat. And then he'd get home at 1am and get up and go to work the next day. So, um, you know, for my family to be there and be supportive as they will. I mean, I don't know. I had 10 cousins from Scotland come watch games. Um, my godmother was there all the time. So, you know, it, it became a family event and, uh, it was a little easier for me because I was living in the borough those two or three years. So I didn't have much, much to go. So I felt bad for them driving home while I got to enjoy a few cold ones with the boys. Right. And I tell you, one of the things, speaking of going out and hanging out with the boys and, and that I still, the one thing that people always talk about you in terms of as a player, they, they remember the toughness and the, the loose balls and the face-offs, especially earlier in your career um, and the, the transition, all those things. But, even more, I think people talk about the leadership and what a great teammate you are. And having been around and seeing that, it's, it's, I found it very interesting because it's not, it's just such a natural thing for you, it seems, to be a leader and to, to just, just be somebody that guys gravitate around. Is that something that always came naturally? Or did you work on that aspect of things? Um, I, I don't really know how to answer that. I mean, the thing that I think that I might have taken a bit of a different approach than other guys is, I never made my relationships in lacrosse about lacrosse. 
Um, If I wanted to go talk to a Sean Evans, we'll say my first game in Peterborough and get to know Sean. I wanted to get to know Sean Evans, the person. I wanted to know how his daughter was doing. I wanted to know how his wife was doing. I wanted to get to know Scotty's family. Um, Chris White treated me like a little brother when I was there. So I think what I did was I just had such amazing vets that got to know me as the person I am and not just the lacrosse player. And to this day have relationships where I can call Jeff Gilbert and check in on his family and things like that. I think that my, if you want to call it leadership, I think it was just more being a good person and trying to get to know everything about someone. I mean, you know, whether it be, you know, yourself or talking to jumbo or talking to guys like that, it's, it's yeah, it's great to talk across, but it's also good to know how things are going in your personal life. And sometimes guys, hide behind lacrosse so when they're having a rough time and you can see their games kind of taking a hit it's you know let's go out and have dinner and let's just talk about everything but lacrosse mm-hmm. so i always tried to make it a personal relationship not as much as a sports one and i think that that resonated with a lot of people and don't get me wrong some people are like you know beat it beat it like you know <laughs> i don't want to talk about it we're here for lacrosse and then you can just talk lacrosse but i just wanted to have the best relationship possible i could with every teammate that's a great answer and you may not want to really respond to this one. I don't know, but because it is, you know, some guys, guys, guys can get a little, a little uncomfortable taking too much praise, but I think everyone did talk about that. Great teammate, great guy. And I've seen from personal experience and seen like when you'd go out with the team, you'd be out with people. One of the things that always stood out was you're always making sure everyone was taken care of. If anyone had an issue, if somebody, you know, had had needed if somebody needed somebody to buy a drink for them you were there to buy it um if somebody needed support in any way it just felt like you were there and that i love the way you put it because that did, did really transcend the game to me the the appeal of you to uh, to your teammates and the people around the around the game with you yeah and lacrosse is always going to be the main uh sur- you know fraternity that we're all in and mm-hmm. we love it to death but there's a bigger fraternity of life right now where, you know, at times, especially nowadays with, you know, there's, there's a lot going around with not just relating to COVID, but before it was, you know, guys getting fights with their wives or girlfriends or, you know, a kid might be misbehaving. And sometimes they just need a guy to talk about not asking him why he missed three loose balls or why he's usually a three and three guy going one and one. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was just trying to be a different outlet or just understanding that, you know, life's bigger than lacrosse and, I wanted to make sure everyone was happy. And, you know, as far as after, that's it's the way it should be. Everyone should be included. And the one thing that I always wanted to do when I was on teams was have no clicks. And as long as there was no clicks and the whole team can get together and have fun, then I think you're going to have, uh, you know, a better chance of success. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, it, it's funny because it does relate to the floor, obviously, but it's like you said, it's not, you know, you're not hanging out and being nice to the best players um, or the guys who are going to help you. You know, it's about being nice to everybody, about being the same person with with everyone. I think that's what really shines through. Well, yeah, and that's important. And those guys are making the big bucks, all those goal scorers. They can buy a couple of guys drinks. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just put a few on their tabs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was nice every once in a while. I know at uh, Montreal House when we go back when, uh, when Junior and TK owned it, every once in a while, Junior would come out with a tray. And just be like, here, everybody have a shot. <laughs> like, oh, okay. yeah, exactly. And yeah. and you know what? I mean, it's not that it always has to be about drinking, but it, it's yeah, yeah. it is a it's it's a great way to whether there's guys at the bar and it's like, well, great, you don't have anything. Let's go get you a coke if you don't drink, or let's go get you a like, you know what I mean? So yeah. just including everybody and making everyone feel a part of the team. Yeah. 
So let's talk about some National Lacrosse League moments from from your career there we kind of got sidetracked well i sidetracked us but uh you know you, you get into the nll you're uh you know all rookie team your uh, transition player of the year your second year in the league it seems like the transition was pretty easy but was it was it that simple for you or did, was there a, a period of adjustment of, of having to make that switch to the pro game oh major adjustment and that's the one thing i always tell people i wish i got to play a year a senior uh, cause before. I just went right out of junior and then I had never played with men before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I adapted a bit better in training camp. Um, just because the only two rookies on our team that year were Tyler Haas and myself. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you don't really have a chance. You, you have to like, you know, like the rookies do you sit games and things like that and you learn. But, um, I think it was just, uh, you know, the transition was just learning and being a sponge and every opportunity you got. And it took me you know, quite a few games to get comfortable before I got going on the transition side. And then you start thinking, you know, you got drafted as a D guy, stay at D. What are you doing? Stay here. And you're scared to go try those, you know, one-on-ones. You just pull it down every time. But I think it was definitely a hard transition. And I know for me, my second year was the big year. It was also the year that uh, Mr. Arlotta decided to go through the large flip. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't keep too many older guys. And, you know, I was kind of one of the you know, more seniority guys on the team at my second year. So it was one of those things where I had an opportunity to step up and just try to do everything that, you know, Mr. Arlotta and uh, Mikey Lyons and Joe Sullivan needed from me. And, you know, you spend the five seasons in Minnesota and then kind of bounce around, you know, go to New England for uh, kind of a season and a half and Rochester, Vancouver, back to New England and, and wrap up with the riptide. And what, how different was that? I mean, you're obviously more of a veteran guy at that point and, uh, and getting more things going probably outside of the game, but how different was it spending five years with one team versus bouncing around to teams? Oh, it was, it was a huge difference, obviously never playing anywhere, but Orangeville. And then another big change was going from Victoria to Peterborough because I'd never made changes like that. Um, But it, it was different. Um, You know, the thing was, was, I guess a part of you thinks, you know, it's kind of cool that, or it's a confidence builder that other teams may want you. Yeah. And then you start to think when you're traded that quickly, like, okay, I guess I'm not what they wanted anymore. I guess I'm not who I used to be. So you go through the internal mental battles, but you always try to think, you know, someone else wanted me and, you know, how do I, how do I play better for these guys and go back and watch tape or relook your workouts. And uh, actually one huge thing I learned from Maddie Vink was, he has a book and uh, he looks at which games he played well with which workouts for that week and stuff. So I started kind of tracking myself, tracking my body. And as an older guy, you kind of have to look into it, into more depth. And uh, I tried to do that. And there was things that I would change, whether it be, you know, I ate this before the game and I felt really good instead of when you're younger, you can eat pretty much a, a large pepperoni pizza and go play a game where you get a little bit older. It's, it's not the same. So yes, it was discouraging, but at the same time, it was always nice to feel wanted. And when you look at that, I'm curious you bring up that, you know, the book that you learned from Matt Vince and, you know, tracking what you're eating, what, how you're working out and how it played out. And did you find pretty quickly there was consistency? There were things that were clearly working for you and were, you repeated and they worked again? Or was there a bit more trial and error where some things did work repeatedly and other things you had to try different variations? So I found right away, the more fish I ate, the better I played. And when looking deeper into it is there's, you know, they tell you to take fish oils for your joints. It's a natural lubricant. So when I would do things like that, I felt 
more confident in myself and instead of you know the greaser and don't get me wrong i like mcdonald's and stuff like that and i'm not <laughs> never going to sit here and lie to you and say i didn't have my meals but yeah. you know preparing for the game whether it be three or four days out and start kind of figuring like okay you got to drink a little bit more water and cut out you know these sugary gatorades all the time so you know it was just understanding it's kind of figuring out your body at 27 28 29 years old that you got to change this like yeah. it's just stuff that worked for you and do you have to squat 390 pounds four times or can I do 150 25 times there was just different things like that where right. you kind of feel like you understand the game a bit more although you need your strength there you know I was at the point where it hurt to squat so it's like I'm just going to do this and try to kind of do endurance at the same time yeah that's that's interesting I mean my my background as I'm sure you know is, is in rowing I was a national team rower for Canada and and you know a bunch of the guys that I would work with you know would be training and and it definitely changed as well and i remember talking to to one of the you know one of my friends who had a you know an olympic and world championship gold medal and he was very good and talking he said you know it completely has changed how i train like when you're younger and rowing you have to do a ton of volume just tons of aerobic like category five six was what we called it just the lower level lower intensity but high volume and uh, he was like you can totally shift that later once you've established that base and you're an older athlete you need more high quality aerobic and you're doing lower volume higher intensity and it sounds like a similar process for you that you're talking about of just finding you know finding the things that that you've already established and you can just maintain with your workouts and then the other things that you're able to build on yeah. And I think a big portion of that is just listening to your body. I mean, if mm -hmm. your knee hurts from doing it, don't do it. Find something yeah. else. There, I mean, there's so many smart trainers and different training methods out there where if squatting hurts, then lunge, if that hurts then lift your heels, there's so many different variations just to take yeah. the pressure off. Yeah. I'm curious with the, uh, you know, we've talked about, you had the, the knee issues and you, you know, you're it, the 15, 16, 17 seasons. Well, 15, you still scored like nine goals with Minnesota, but 16 and 17, missed some games and you didn't seem to be going. Um, you, you didn't, I don't think you have as many opportunities and certainly your scoring was down. You go to Vancouver in 2018 and kind of rediscovered your touch. You get nine goals and 10 assists. And I'm curious, is that, was that a conscious thing where it felt like I'm ready to go or was it part of the coaching staff saying, go ahead whenever you want, or did it just kind of happen? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. that year that I was cut short in New England and didn't start in Rochester, I was coming off that third knee injury. Mm -hmm. So that third knee leading into Rochester, I got to get into the games. And I don't know if I, I – I'll tell people all the time, I find it's about a year after your ACL until you start to feel yeah. like yourself. So as much as you're trying to muster through, uh, I don't know if my step was there. And, you know, uh, Hazer and Patio, too, you, you, we had a – hell of an offense so you know it's not me to get it up, like go take those shots even though we didn't have the greatest year I mean we had Doss and Jammer for a few games and Joey Rez and Lomas and all those guys up there so I guess a bit of it was just you know I wanted to get them the ball and then mm -hmm. uh, in Vancouver high-powered offense but I think there was a bit more green light go mm -hmm. so it's a bit, bit buying into your systems as well yeah I mean it's always going to be what's suiting for the team right I mean you're going to run if they want you to run and not if they don't want you to. But I, I, it feels like even, I mean, even in Rochester where you're talking about, you know, Mike Hazen has kind of shifted, I think, his approach and he's more open to a transition game. But for sure, I mean, you would have seen it in Peterborough as well when he came into Peterborough and said, you know, defense, get the ball, give it to the offense, get off the floor. Offense, 
try and score. When you lose the ball, get off the floor. There wasn't, it wasn't about a running game, but, but that's evolved as well. So, so it's, uh, it really has to be what, you know, what they're looking for you to do and what they're comfortable with you doing. Right. Yeah. And I think it comes down to depth. I mean, if you got yeah. an older guy like myself or Zach Courier who can run the ball up, I think it's a no brainer, pass the ball and get off the floor. You know what I mean? And, right. and that comes with understanding your role. And, um, you know, in Rochester, the rule was don't cheat either way. Don't cheat on defense. Don't cheat on offense, get off and get off. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, or, or don't leave the zone early and get off. So yeah. it's, it's different philosophies, which I mean, three in a row championships speak for themselves. I'm not going to ever sit here and second guess anything and multiple man cups speak for themselves. So, it, Hey, I was happy just to be able to play the game. I loved. And the one thing I always wanted to do was buy into the role. Yeah. There might've been times you didn't love your role, but it was still your job to buy into it. Yeah. And it, like you said, it's hard to argue with all those championships. I mean, Mike Hazen and the example we're using with, with a ton of success. And uh, um, I want to talk about another element of the game. And a lot of people, when they think of you, they think of fighting. And I know you always, you always enjoyed having a good Tilly, it seemed, but uh, what, what do you think of fighting in the, in the game? Like, how did you feel that evolved as part of your role in the game? Uh, I mean, the way I, I, I kind of, walk around light footed on this one, because I know yeah. there are some people that are completely against it. And some people yes. that feel that the buckets offer is a show where I see it the complete opposite way. I feel like it, it's a, it plays a huge factor in the game. Um, you saw when it was taken out a major, how many more high sticks and bad jaws there were. And I understand that that was a change of the cage and stuff like that. But the big thing that I always like to relate back to is, I understand people might think that it's staged, but my opinion, it's two people willing to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't like when it happens when someone has the upper hand because they can get a helmet off faster than someone else, or that guy might not want to, where if there's two guys who step back and are willing to me, that's two guys have agreed to settle this right now. Not yeah. a guy that rips a guy's helmet off and fills them in. And then he's now going to answer to someone else. And it's almost like a domino effect. I mean, I don't think that it's ever considered staged. There's times that it it may look that, but it's two people willing. And it really is a chess match when you go in. Mm -hmm. You can't just go lean in because for all you know, you'll take one right to the jaw and you kind of wake up a couple of minutes later, right? So uh, I think there's a huge part of it still in the game. And I think the thing that people don't know or realize at times is how tough some of these guys actually are. I mean, I know you and I have seen firsthand, but I think Jake Withers might be one of the, most complete lacrosse players going right now. And if some people have seen what he's able to do when he's put into a corner, it's pretty scary too. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and other people know that. So it's the fact that there's these guys can do it, but there's also people that don't want to do it with them. And I understand it's down and down uh, quite significantly since I started, mm-hmm. which could also be the side that people go to work on Monday. Yeah. You can't just go to work. Like you can't go to a sales job or if you're, a teacher with two black guys and telling kids they can't fight on the playground. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand that. And I think there will always be a spot for it. Um, that's obviously ever changing, but I mean, look at last year in the NHL where they weren't allowed fans fighting was up tremendously because it's still the best way to switch momentum. Right. So I, I'm impartial on it as far as I walk around it kind of light footed. Cause it's something that I did, but at the same time, I always think there's going to be a place for it. Yeah. And I, I'm totally with you on the, uh, the, the idea that it should be guys who are willing. I, I hate to see a guy pull somebody's bucket off and start throwing. I'm like, if the guy's helmet's off, get your helmet off. Right. Like let's be exactly. even about this. I, I hate that stuff. Um, 
And that's where I think maybe you said, you know, sometimes people think it's staged. And I think when they see something like, you know, when a lot of your fights, you and your, whoever you're going against would, would stop, take your helmets off, get them out of the way, get the, get things. And I think people think, Oh, it's staged. It's like, no, they're just being respectful to me. Like, Res- respectful. And Hey man, I'm the one going in against a, a Brody or Paul Dawson or Rory. I, I, if I step on this, my foot gets stuck. And I'm going to sleep. Yeah. Like, so you know, like I said, you have to go in and you're worried about your health at the same time as trying to change momentum for your team. And mm-hmm. I can tell you firsthand from a Paul Dawson, a Brody Merrill, a Matty Beers, a Snyder, a Rory, a lot of the time it was to change momentum. It's not about I'm tougher than you and I'm going to prove it to everybody. Yeah. It's, it's never really what it's about. Like, it's just about trying to make sure your team has the best opportunity to win. Or if a guy wants to go take off, you know, Adam Jones's head or Sean Evans's head, it's we're not going to stand for it and a lot of the time if you notice too is it's not the guy that does the cheap shot that answers the bell it's actually the guy the other guy on the other team which says okay our two guys are going to settle this and then that's done with maybe the guy wants to get him back a little later in the game which is in any sport yeah right so i mean a prime example just like the blue jays i mean baseball non-contact sport someone stole our card last game and he ended up taking a fastball right in the middle of the back yeah so and, there's things like that, right? Yeah. And, you know, people talk about the code, the unwritten rules, whatever. And I mean, in baseball, that's a great example of, you know, there are people who say you should never throw at anybody. And it's like, well, the guy shouldn't have taken that card. And when he realized exactly. what it was, he should have given it back. And knowing that that's the way that the game goes, whatever you think about whether or not it should be, you know, that that's how it goes. That's the way it's gone for decades. Um, yeah. So and they're, and they're yeah. ever, and they're ever growing sports, right? Yeah, they always seem to be, you know, gaining more and more following and it doesn't always have to be fighting, but there are th- ways like I'd say, I'd rather see two guys square off and settle it. And maybe one punch lands and some guy coming across the middle and taking a cross check to the team. Yeah. Because yeah, there are people that say they'd rather have that where I rather and realistically look at a lot of these fights, guys walk out unscathed a lot of the time. Yeah. So it's kind of, I've, that's where I stand on it, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it is, as you said, a controversial topic, but I want to talk about it because it was a, a significant part of your career. And I think uh, the big, the thing that it really represented to me too, was that, like you said, if somebody's going to go after Adam Jones or Sean Evans, it's not going to, you're not going to tolerate it. It's not going to happen for long. Um, exactly. And like, that's my favorite analogy because is it, okay, you went after, say I'm playing Evie and I'm with Jonesy. Is it, is it better for me? to square off and settle it or go try to take the same shot at Evie. You know what I mean? Which is just going to escalate it and make it worse. I remember talking to, um, to uh, Brandon Jacobs after a game once, because I I was watching the game. It's when John Tavares and, uh, and Brandon were playing in, um, in Peterborough and somebody knocked Tavares down and Jacobs went after him. And I saw him after the game. I was like, and, and I said, that was a clean hit on JT, eh? He goes, it doesn't matter. You don't hit JT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, That's fair. I mean, JT was at the time, you know, he'd been playing for a long time and was already, um, I mean, you can argue about who's the greatest and in Peterborough trying to argue anyone other than John Grant Jr. is a, is a tough battle, but I mean, JT is not far off it if he's not the goat. Right. So you just, Oh, for sure. That guy. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to see, are there any other moments like from your NLL career, anything that just kind of, one that you want to talk about that you really remember super fondly? 
you know, the, the one that I remember fondly was the year that I tore my knee the first time and we had an unbelievable team and we ended up beating the rock and just barely losing to Edmonton. And, you know, that's kind of, I remember about as close as I really got um, to get into the finals. But the thing that I always just remember is, and I always told the younger guys is, you know, don't take the first couple of years for granted because it might be as close as you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my biggest regret is not having that championship and it just wasn't in the cards for me, but it's, uh, I always remember how hard did that playoffs were. Uh, I'll never forget that. So what is next for you? You mentioned you got a bigger role uh, in your, in your regular job. What's, uh, what's on your plate besides obviously spending more time with, uh, with JJ, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, I'm just uh, going to try to get healthier every day, mm-hmm. um, do things to in- improve my body for later on in life. And, you know, I'm going to become a, a student of the game again. And I hope, you know, three or four or five or, you know, however many years down the road, I can hopefully get back involved with either scouting or coaching. And uh, I hope to, you know, get on a bench eventually someday or I'd love to be a GM one day, which is, you know, always been a dream of mine. I don't, I'd rather be a GM than a coach. And um, it's just waiting to learn this game and see where it takes off. Obviously with such uh, tremendous growth, it's just learning it more and adapting to it more and learning from great people. So why GM instead of coach? What, what's the appeal there? I like putting the pieces together and then having input and then watching someone who's a better X and O's guy. I like to, get to know the players on a personal letter and be able to be their friend, you know, at times, but also hold them to a higher standard. Uh, I enjoy, you know, negotiations. I enjoy things like that. So I just always have always had just a dream of being a a GM one day. Very cool. uh, Most guys, I think, think more coach and, and that's kind of the natural approach a lot of people take. And then eventually down the road, you know, guys will go in. I mean, you do see examples, uh, Brad Self, good example who uh, didn't, I don't know if he did any coaching and then, uh, you know, slid into a, an assistant GM role, I think, and then became the GM in Colorado. And you do see guys like that, but that's, that's interesting. Yeah, Dan, to, Dan Carey. I'm not yeah. sure Dano ever coached yet. Uh, so. I'm trying to think not much. I, I feel like he may have coached. He, he coached a bit. I know he helped coach the, uh, was it the senior Lakers or junior Lakers? He was a offensive. Oh, I just, yeah. Player. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I hear that. Yeah. So, but it's yeah. just, uh, yeah, it's just always been a, a life goal. Yeah. And, I don't know if I'll get it, but it's something to work towards. Well, I have a feeling that uh, having having put it out there, there will be people people more than happy to reach out to you and uh, and give you an opportunity just because of what you have contributed to the game and just uh, honestly, just the guy that you are. I think that's why one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was I've just always enjoyed getting to chat with you, get to hang out before games, after games, and I know how widespread that feeling is. So I wanted to let people share in that a little bit. So uh, it's great having you come on, man. Thank you very much, man. It's always a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we will. I, I know you're not going to be absent from rinks in, in the next while. Oh, no. So, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this game. And uh, that's something I can guarantee is uh, I'll be around, whether it be watching the kids, watching the juniors, or uh, I'll be taking in every game and going to as many as I'm able to get to kind of thing. So I think that, uh, you know, the Toronto Rock picked up a new kind of super fan because that's the easiest one to get to, especially with this border closing. Right. Yeah. So I'm so. sure we will run into you down at uh, down in Hamilton. And uh, absolutely. I up some games. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds good, buddy. I'll talk to you. All right.
right, lacrosse friends. I'll just about wrap things up for another episode of Laxbeat, part of the Lacrosse Link family. I'm your host, Stephen Stamp. Thank you to you, lacrosse friends, and to Andrew Suter for being here with me this week. Always a pleasure to catch up with Suits. Always a pleasure to have you here for the podcast. Please do sign up, subscribe, so you get notifications every week when Laxbeat drops, and you will be privy to Great conversations with some of the leading figures and really interesting people in the world of lacrosse. Some pretty interesting stuff coming up. We're going international. We're going to have men, women, box, sixes, field. Uh, Lots of cool stuff coming up on Laxbeat and, of course, on Lacrosse Link, the show. So make sure you go check that out on the Lacrosse Link um, YouTube site and lacrosselink.com. All the episodes are there, so you can check them out there. Uh, remember, this week it is a pair of conversations with recent champions Lucas Beaver of the Seneca Marksman, who won the IBLA championship, and PLL champion Max Adler of Chaos LC. And you can check out last week's episode with Graham Hossick of the Halifax Thunderbirds and Paul St. John, Commissioner of the Arena Lacrosse League. Uh, Great to have you with me. Look forward to seeing you next week and every week on Laxbeat.